Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. And we are back with another Take Two segment where we do our deep dive on two iconic albums by an iconic artist. This time, it's all about Drake. Last week, we broke down Drake's 2013 LP, Nothing Was the Same. And today, we catch up with, as far as we know, what was his most recent studio LP, at least at the time of this taping, Scorpion. Look, I just flipped the switch. I don't know nobody else that's doing this. Body start to drop, ayy. Hit the floor. Now they wanna know me since I hit the top, ayy. This a rolling, not a stop. Watch shit don't never stop. This the flow that got the block. Scorpion should have been a victory lap for Drake. It was his first double album, one that somehow went platinum before it was released, and it gave us one of the better memes of 2018, the In My Feelings dance, aka the Kiki Challenge. Shout out to Shiggy. I hope that guy's getting some residuals off of that. But Drake somehow managed to proceed the release of his own LP by taking a major L when him and Pusha T got into it, leading to the world learning that Drake was, and I quote, hiding a child, which is not something you typically hear in a diss rhyme. Last week, we looked at early Drake, the ways in which through his many features and his own releases, he was carefully molding a public persona filled with contradictions, claiming to be self-made, yet he was a child TV star, flaunting his successes, yet constantly lamenting the price that came with it. Few rappers seemed as simultaneously happy and sad as Drizzy. But in 2018, that carefully crafted image began to show cracks as his real life wound its way into parts of the new album. And for a brief moment, it's like we got to peek behind the curtain. And as Morgan and I will discuss, it wasn't always pretty in terms of what we saw. Regardless, though, none of this was enough to nudge Drake off his perch atop pop music's leaderboard, especially with hits like In My Feelings and Nice For What. Even if 2020 has been a relatively quiet year for Drake, you know he's nowhere near ready to fade from view. Is it God's plan or Drake's plan? I'm sure we'll learn soon enough. By the time this episode airs, it might be that Drake's latest LP, which is entitled, at least nominally titled, Certified Loverboy, might be out. But at least, like I said a moment ago, right now, Scorpion is the most recent album that we have by him. And especially as it is, I believe, Drake's first, at least official double album, it's a whole lot of drizzy to soak in. And Morgan... We started talking a lot about this during the last episode, but thinking about Drake at the end of the 20 teens, where do you think his stature is now, especially compared to, let's say, where he was seven years ago when Nothing Was the Same came out? Megastar and Elder Statesman. And I'm Mm. saying this even though he's only 33. I think it'd be 34 this year. But he is one of the few stars that I can see that has benefited from both the the last glory days in hip hop where a few of us were still buying albums, uh, but also where he came into the new school where he has ethered streaming and just digital platforms in general. Um, Just a few stats. His song Tootsie Slide had a billion views on TikTok in two days. One billion. 
His song Nonstop inspired a whole flip the switch dance challenge on TikTok, which is a whole new platform that is blowing up. He's still super relevant this year. And this year in a year where no one's gigging, no one's working, he's already made 50 million and the year's not over yet. You know, he may have gotten some heat at Camp Flogna, but it hasn't you know, stopped his output at all or his name being in the conversation. And that a song from two years ago could be a huge hit on TikTok now says a lot about his relevance, um, his stature, and the fact that he is, period, a brand. And I think when I think about the word brand, he's the first, I think, rapper that I thought, okay, he has built a brand, he has become a brand, he will be remembered as a brand. I think what's, to me, really telling, and I I alluded to this briefly during last week's episode, is how at this point, and by this I mean 2018, though I think 2020 works as well, but Drake had basically either outshone or outlasted most of the bigger acts that were around when Nothing Was the Same came out. So you think about where, you know, where is Lil Wayne now? Where is Jay-Z now? Where Where are Kanye now? I think the only act that was really even approaching Drake's level in 2018 was Cardi B with Invasion of Privacy. But you look around who the other big albums or big acts were from that year, and they're all up-and-coming younger artists. So whether it's Migos or City Girls, Tira Wack, The Baby, etc., you know, by 2018, he had ascended to become the biggest hip-hop slash R&B act that, we, that we've seen. Um, in that year, and, and I don't think that's really changed much in the last two years. I mean, he he really did make it from the, to the top. Whether he started from the bottom or not, actually, you know, we debated that last time. But I think there's no question in terms of where he's ascended to, um, and the fact that again, I I think he has now gotten to the top of that ladder in a way where his what who would have been considered his t- contemporaries from even just five, six, seven years ago have. I don't say I don't want to say fallen by the wayside. It's not like Jay Z couldn't come back with a new album if he wanted to, but to that point, he hasn't. And the the Carter's LP from that year, despite ape shit, I don't think really blew up in the way that you would have imagined, like a Jay Z Beyonce collabo album should have. In in contrast, I feel like Scorpion, you know, was a capstone kind of uh, album in terms of its success. Sure, and I think too, one thing about um, him at that point in his career and even now is he's close enough in age to this generations of this next generations of rappers that he can be considered a big homie and not be so far away and so if you think of things like the features that he's done Travis Scott's sicko mode little baby and gunna's never recover that he's both in his lane and in his bag but he's just 33 so he doesn't seem lifetimes older than them or from a different generation it's the same thing he just got a he just got a head start I mean a hell of a head start but he got a head start on it with Scorpion in particular, do you hear or see Drake doing anything significantly different on this LP? Because I think one of the common critiques when you read reviews of, of Scorpion from the year is that Drake wasn't really charting new ground. It just mostly sounded like a retread of other things that he had done before. And especially because it's a double album, you're getting twice as much in a way. For sure, 25 tracks, for sure. And he may not be charting new ground on this record, but he also did chart new ground on this record when it comes to having records. When it dropped in June, it broke the single-day streaming record on Apple and Spotify, making him the first artist to pass a billion streams. Um, Sonically, I think this is very much classic Drake, where you have the two sides of Drake, rapper and singer, brash and sensitive, Scorpio and Cancer. 
um, and a whole 25 tracks to get to know him if you don't know him already. So I think those people that are fans of Drake and fans of that style, you won't be disappointed here. I don't think it's a bad thing for it to be more of the same. Um, I like that. I like that there are two sections, which sort of makes you feel like there's going to be two different Drakes, but it, it, there aren't. It's the same Drake split across two different sections, in my opinion. All of this disorder, no address, and the crown is broken in pieces, but there's more in my possession. There's a whole lot in my possession. Who do you really love? Well, that's short of being questioned. My Mount Rushmore is me with four different expressions. Who's giving out this much return on investment? After my run, man, do you feel like Scorpion works as a double album? Because I think, and I can't remember what the episode was in the past, but I'm pretty sure I'm on record for saying, by and large, I don't think most double albums work because it's just hard to maintain a level of consistency across that many songs without exhausting, with either, without either, either number one, having to include a lot of filler that probably would have and should have been cut if the album had been just a single disc, um, or you're just overstaying your welcome. So even if you have some consistency within there, it's just too much of a listen to have to sit through. I, I forget what the total runtime on this, but it's got to be at least over 90 minutes, if not more. I think that that having a double album in 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 Drake's case and on the case of this album is it gives you a lot to choose from so that you don't have 15 songs and then you identify the three that are your jams, the four that you can skip and the other five that you're just like, what was that? I think with 25, you find little nuggets in places and we can get to some of those nuggets a little bit later, but it's enough for every sort of fan of Drake. It's excessive and it's and it's indulgent. So if you if you like this type of Drake, there's a couple of tracks for that. If you prefer the more trappy, you know, hard Drake, there's that. If you prefer these little, you know, snippets, interludes, jewels, that's me all day, there's that. And I think having a double album gives you, you know, gives you the 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 breadth, you know, and the depth to find something that you like. So I, I don't think it's problematic for him. It's a, to me, it, when it came across, it was exciting. It was like more Drake. And it's only, you know, eight or 10 more tracks than other albums. But for me, that was, I found that very exciting. Niggas want a classic, that's just ten of these. Crime family like the Genovese. You don't want drama, capiche. My house is full of supermodels, just like Muhammad Hadid. I take this shit too serious. You niggas, my comic relief. I find it funny how I keep on talking and commas increase. I'm standing at the top of where you I think one of the prominent tensions on Scorpion is the fact that, and we talked a lot last episode about sort of the difference between Drake as a persona and then and then Aubrey Graham as, as, a, as a person. And this is one of the few cases where these two things really come into collision because I do think Drake, by and large, spends his time as confessional as his shtick may seem. He's confessing in terms of the Drake persona, but because the kind of unavoidable backdrop to this particular album is that in between efforts, Drake had become a father, um, much against his will, as Pusha T insinuated on uh, his his diss track, the, the story of, of Adidon. And what's weird to me on this album in particular, and I'm certainly not the only person to have noticed or, or remarked on this, is on the one hand, Drake t- tries to do that thing that a lot of recording artists, when they become parents, especially for the first time, is they have a song devoted to their, their newborn. Um, and Drake ends Scorpion with such a song, which is March the 14th or March 14th. I'm out here on front lines just trying to make sure that I see him sometimes. It's breaking my spirit. 
Single father, I hate when I hear it. I used to challenge my parents on every album. Now I'm embarrassed to tell them I ended up as a co-parent. Always promised a family unit. I wanted it to be different because I've been through it. But this is the harsh truth now. Fairy tales are saved for the bedtime. So on the one hand, I feel like March the 14th is some of like the realest shit that Drake has ever written, you know, because he's talking about his relationship to his own parents who um, had broken up as, as he grew up. And now he finds himself in, in, in a similar situation as someone who is not partnered with his, his baby's mother. The problem though is, is the sentiment of March the 14th feels kind of hollow when you have on the first disc, a song like I'm upset where the big hook is can't go 50, 50 with no hope every month. I'm supposed to pay her bills and get her what she want. I still got like seven years of doing what I want. My dad still got child support from 1991. I have not fully untangled my feelings around this in a way that might be the most cogent, but I guess it's on the one hand, I think as much as people like Drake in that confessional persona, as I've been talking about, for me, I think what people actually prefer is his I'm successful, but also low key depressed persona, because maybe that's it's relatable in this kind of aspirational way. I don't know if his fans really want to hear, but the actual shit that's going down in his life. And I think a song like I'm upset in relationship to March 14th, it really punctures that veil and we're taken behind the curtain to kind of get into Drake's real feelings. And I, I don't know. It makes it's a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to hear Drake rhyming about his his baby mama drama. I think there's a thin line between transparency and doing too much. And I think these two songs that you mentioned ride that line. I think I'm where you are. I'm you know, I'm just so grateful that we agree on something where it comes to Drake. This is a moment. Um, uh, I think I am where you are that like, I like to keep the, the illusion of him being in a club and being sad and sitting by himself thinking, you know, woe is me. I've got all this, but what do I really have? And I get a little bit more confused on this when he's going into depth about things that sort of showed up on blogs first before he came forward with it. There were these hints. Someone's got a baby. There was pictures on Instagram or is this really him? So for him to have to address it in what may or may not have been under duress isn't necessarily, you know, how we might have wanted to have heard it. And even on on that song, I mean, he goes from saying, you know, I'm thankful for all the I'm thankful for all the women that I know. And you're like, yes. And then he's like, can't go 50 50 with some. And you're like, it's no, like, wait, what? <laughs> bad Drake, bad. But I think if we go. You know, if we if we think about his discography over time, there are all this those contradictions have always been there. And I think this was tough. And I think once Pusha T put him out there and my God, did he put him out there? I mean, he 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 bought the smoke. Drug dealing aside, goose right in the side. Let's have a heart to heart about your pride. Even though you're multi, I see that your soul don't look alive. The M's count different when baby divides the pie. Wait, let's examine why. Your music for the past few years been angry and full of lies. I started at the home front, I'm on one. Dennis Graham, stay off the gram, bitch, I'm on one. You mentioned wedding but, uh But yeah, I think this all put him out here. And, and who's to say... If he would have addressed it like this, had he not been called out. But I'm blessed. I just check. 
Pay me, never met me in the flesh. Say she got some things she gotta come here and collect. That shit is in a box to the left, to the left. Got a lot of blood and it's cold. Do you have a favorite Drake album? If you had to choose one, is Scorpion your favorite? No, because I think the main reason I picked it as part of this take two segment was a, because it was his most recent one. And I, th I thought it was valuable to talk about where Drake is um, in the here and now or here ish and now, but it also has two of my favorite Drake songs of all time, which we'll talk about um, more in the second half. So it had these big hits songs that I, I really could roll with. But I, one of the things I mentioned in last week's segment is I have never sat with entire Drake albums and it wasn't until prepping for, uh, this pair of segments that I finally sat down and did that. So I would probably, I would need to go back to views. I would need to go back to, you know, everything else that he's put out to kind of gauge what would be, I would consider to be a favorite, but I'll just say that listening to those, those the two albums that, that we've been covering here, neither of them to me really work as, as albums in terms of, I don't really want to sit with them for their entirety in any way. Um, I can cherry pick songs I like and genuinely really, really like, but I'm, I don't, derive a ton of pleasure in terms of, again, sitting with them as LPs. And I think largely it's because for me, Drake works in these small bits and pieces, but the more time I, I have to spend in Drake's world, the more I want to get out of there. That's just where I'm coming from in my relationship to him as an artist. Is there more to life than going on trips to Dubai? Yachts on the 4th of July, G5 soaring the skies. Is there more to life than all of these corporate ties and all of these fortunate times and all of these asses that never come in proportionate size? Am I missing something that's more important to find? Like healing my soul, like family time. Is there more to life than just when I'm feeling alive? Is there more? Well, let's dig deeper into the songs on Scorpion after we come back from our break. So first, let's listen to some of our Sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Passion, instant, sweat beats, fill me, cupids, shine me. Well, hello, I'm Renee Colvert. Hi, I'm Alexis Preston, and we are the host of Can I Pet Your Dog? And we got breaking news, we got an expose, and all the beans have been spilled via an Apple podcast review that said, this show isn't well-researched. <gasps> well, yeah, no duh. Of course it's not. Not since the day we started has it been well-researched. Guessing and anthropomorphizing dogs is what we do. The Can I Pet Your Dog promise is that we will never do more than 10 seconds of research before telling you excitedly about any dog we see. I'm going to come at you with top 10 enthusiasm, minimal facts. We're here for a good time, not an educated time. So if you love dogs and you don't love research, well, <laughs> you know what? Come on in to Can I Pet Your Dog podcast every Tuesday on Maximum Fun Network. <laughs> Hey, I'm Jared Hill, co-host of the brand new Maximum Fun podcast, Fan Time. And I'm Travel Anderson. I'm the other more fabulous co-host. And the reason you really should be tuning in. I feel the nausea rising. To be Fanti is to be a big fan of something, but also have some challenging or anti-feelings toward it. Kind of like Kanye. We're all fans of Kanye. He's a musical genius, but like, you know. He thinks slavery is a choice. Or like the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Like, I love the drama, but do I want to see black women fighting each other on screen? Ew, to the nah, to the nah, nah, nah. We're tackling all of those complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that we love. Even though they may not love us back. Fanti, Maximum Fun, podcast. Ow.
Heat Rockers, if you recall back in October when we were celebrating our third anniversary, we mentioned that we had gotten some custom 45 adapter slash weights made featuring Megan Cott's pin design from last year for Heat Rocks. Well, for a limited time, we have those adapters now available for sale to anyone who wants them. Between now and the end of the year, you can find them through our website at heatrockspod.com. All profits from the sale will be donated to the LA Downtown Women's Center. I need to stress that this is a limited time sale, mostly because we need to make a bulk order to get these produced and shipped back to us from the good folks at the SureShot shop. Again, our special Heat Rocks 45 adapter slash weights are now available through the end of 2020. Visit heatrockspod.com to order. Thank you for supporting us and for supporting the Downtown Women's Center. All right, and we're back on Heat Rocks, and we are doing our Take Two series. And this time, we're talking about Drake and Scorpion. So with Scorpion, let's get into the fire tracks. And I'll kick this off. Nice for what? Number one. like Absolutely unassailable club banger. Uh, I love it for at least two reasons. Number one, I love that it's powered by this Lauren Hill loop that I just would not have expected to have been the kind of the core of what makes this song work. And number two, I just thought it was a really cool way to get some very classic New Orleans bounce onto the charts in such a big mainstream way. Uh, shout out to Big Frida, who obviously is, is really prominent on here. And it's just fun to hear like the, the, the influence of Bounce all over this song. We, we, we can talk a, a little bit more about some of the samples if we have time for that, but I like that he sampled Lauren, and I felt like it was also bringing Lauren into this next generation um, right. for people that might have forgotten her, her, which I thought was smart and very cool as a Lauren Hill fan myself. Now, speaking of this, I got a question for you that I feel like you are expertly qualified to answer, because in looking at the number of writing credits on this song, it was just a crazy list of folks. And so, the, and I noticed it included Wu-Tang members on it. And I'm like, why did the Wu-Tang Clan get writing credit on here? I understand why they did on Wu-Tang Forever on Drake's, you know, from, from uh, Nothing Was the Same, because that's actually sampling from um, Wu-Tang's It's Yours. But in this case, I'm like, why the hell are the Wu getting credits? But then I, rem- I remembered, oh yeah, it's because Lauren Hill's X Factor, which is where the loop for Nice For What comes from, that song sampled from Wu-Tang's Can It Be So Simple. But I can't hear the Wu sample on here at all. But clearly, at least legally speaking, Drake was obligated to clear it from the Wu-Tang. And not only do they clear it from the Wu-Tang, but also you'll notice the names Alan and Marilyn Bergman are credited. And they are the people who originally wrote The Way We Were, which was performed by Gladys Knight, which was then sampled by the Wu-Tang for Can It Be So Simple. And so this single song, it has to clear the Lauren song, which therefore means it has to clear the Wu-Tang song that Lauren samples, which therefore means it has to clear the song written by the Bergmans 
that the Wu-Tang sampled, that seems nuts to me. And this is the amount of paperwork. And I know, Morgan, you oftentimes joke on here about songs that you would love to place, but because of the of the layers of sampling, like you don't even want to go anywhere near. I would imagine a song like this would have to be top tier. Like no Morgan Rhodes production or, or music supervision credit is going to involve you trying to place nice for what, because you just don't want to have to go through eight layers of paperwork to get there. Nope. And just you talking about all the parties involved gave me a bit of anxiety. Um, just hearing about it. This would be tough to clear for a number of reasons. One, your finances would have to be right because, you know, that's going to be an expensive clearance Two, the use would have to justify what you're going to spend. And so this is not something that you'd want to play in the background or on the radio, you know, what I'm saying because you're going to spend quite a bit of cash for that. And number right. three, this is end credits or nothing, uh, you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent a featured use, a montage where you've got money, an end or main title. And on top of that, it's not going to be a quick clearance either. And since I work in, work in television, mostly I need quick clearances and trying to track down everybody, get the splits and know who goes to what. It's not something and I love the song, but it's not something that would necessarily be in my wheelhouse and unless the episode had a ton of money and this was the only song they wanted to clear. I don't want to take our listeners too far down like a copyright tangent here, but I'm just so surprised by this because the fact that in order for Drake to put this song out, they had to clear this all the way back to the songwriters for the way we were, even though there's nothing in Lauren's song or the loop that's used by Drake from Lauren, you would never make that connection on a sonic level back to the Bergmans. It's not like their songwriting is involved in, in X factor in terms of she's not quoting from them, the, the lyrics. Um, so I'm just, I'm surprised that you would actually have to go that many layers back. I mean, even the fact that the Wu Tang had to be brought in surprises me because you don't hear it in the loop that Drake is using. Sure. Sure. But, but no matter how short or featured an interpolation is that has to be accounted for. And this is what makes the game so cold. Even if you use that song and you didn't use the original, if someone was humming that song, you'd still have to clear it. You wouldn't have to clear the master, but you'd have to clear the publishing and you'd have to go back to all those people <laughs> who would all be considered co-writers on this. Even if someone was humming, it's just a, it's just a cold game out there. And so yeah. there are lawyers whose whole job is to find interpolations, to sniff out samples and interpolations. And that's how you have to be so careful. And sometimes you'll clear a song and not find out about some small piece that you didn't know existed until the end or someone that was a co-writer. And so that's just a tough game about hip hop. You can have upwards. I had one of my homegirls, um, you know, she's she does music supervision for advertising and she cleared a song that had 24 writers on it. She said at the end of the day, she just came home and started crying. And so um, hip hip hop is tough that way because there's always a lot of samples, anything from the nineties, forget about it. And so it's daunting to say the least. Well, shout out to OVO's legal team because I do love nice for what. So I'm glad they went through all the trouble to make sure they could put this out. Cause you know that again, that Lauren sample is what to me really makes a song. And then before we forget, I mean, really fun video too. 
um, you know, it might be the song itself might be kind of on the lighter end of, of female empowerment anthems, but nonetheless, like it was really fun to see all of these uh, actresses, uh, especially black actresses, being given uh, the spotlight uh, in the video. One hundred percent. All right, what's your fire track off of Scorpion Morgan? God's plan. Mm. You know how I like it when you loving on me. I don't wanna die for them to miss me. Yes, I see the things that they wishing on me. Hope I got some brothers that outlive me. They gon' tell the story, shit was different with me. God's plan. God's plan. Um, I like that, you know, that's uh that's Drake again with some memorable chorus hook that you'll never forget. That's pretty simple, God's plan. Um, obviously, I like that he mentions God, so I'm going to co-sign that. <laughs> and uh, although I think people's responses were divided over the video, um, about were his intentions self-serving, it's worth noting that over the course of the video, he gave away $175,000 to people in Miami. I think Antonio Brown might have been in the video dancing up with him. And I thought the spirit and the intentionality behind it was really good. And I thought it was, you said, you mentioned catchy at the top. And that's Drake, 100% catchy. And this right. was one of those things where you heard people saying God's plan. God, it became part of lexicon. And this is another thing that Drake does. He, he gives us the slang. He gives us the words. And God's plan became a thing that people kept saying about their own desires and aspirations and things that were happen, happening about him. So I, not only do I like the song, I like what it yielded afterwards. Bouncy, personal, and it yielded a lot. Bad things. It's a lot of bad things that they wish and 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 on me. Yeah. Hey, hey. She say, Do you love me? I tell her only partly. I only love my bed and my mom. I'm sorry. 50 dub. I even got it tatted on me. 81. Oh, man, and that sounds so good on. on it's on, a good uh, one. Uh, no, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And on, 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 on elevated decibels, be it in the car, in the house, it just sounds so good. It thumps, man. So it's hard to choose, but that's the one that I bump over and over again. How about favorite moments off of this LP? One of my favorite moments is just one of, the, one of those buried songs. It isn't a particular moment, but it is a buried song on the album called Finesse. One thing at a time, I have to learn to hide. One thing at a time, emotions running high. I wish you felt alright, just hitting my line all the time. All One of the things that hasn't come up today or that I haven't mentioned is, you know, I, I do like melancholy sounding Drake. And this was a surprise on the album because it reminded me of, you know, of albums past. It reminded me of this sort of heaviness that sometimes, you know, sounds like morning after Drake, like Drake with regrets. And I loved on an otherwise sort of, I thought, spirited album. I liked Finesse's, where Finesse came in the album, which comes after Nice For What? And you just, you're not expecting it. And I was just like, ooh, ooh, this, now see, this is the Drake that I'll always love. And so that moment where it comes in and it's very heavy and, and uh, mournful is, is a perfect moment for me. You. 
it is two different moments that are both on nice for what and one of it is when drake first comes in verse wise on the song itself with a very clear nod to the big timers get your roll on everybody get your motherfucking roll on i don't show you and she doesn't want no slow song had a man last year life goes on haven't let the thing lose girl it's so long you've been inside the second moment, and I think probably if you were to force me to choose between them, it would be the bounce breakdown towards the end of the song that has the air raid siren that comes in. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's just so much fun. And I like, I like dance songs in particular that change things up and that they hit you with new tempos in the middle. Um, maybe unexpected. I mean, I think if you know, if you listen to enough Norman's Bounce music, it's not surprising because those kind of breakdowns are very familiar. But I think for, again, a, a mainstream pop song that it is not something that you would necessarily expect, especially looking at, at Drake's larger catalog. And so the surprise element of it and just the sheer energy that's encapsulated in that moment really, really lingers. Yeah. You know, Drake now is about, depending on when you want to mark like his breakout, and I would say it goes back at least to probably 2009, certainly by, I think, 2010. So he's been at this for about 10 years, um, which in pop years, depending on who you're looking at, is either very long or maybe, you know, at least mid-career. Anyways, my point here is he's in his early 30s at this point. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you know, he has now reached the point at which a lot of the contemporaries that he started amongst, he's now overtaken them, at least in terms of his level of visibility and success. Um, But he's also got a lot of competition from younger acts than him now. And as we both know, it's hard to stay on the top for very long in this pop game. How much longer do you think Drake has in him? Would you be surprised if he's still somewhere kind of in the mix of the stature that he has, let's say five years from now, let alone 10 years from now? I would not at all be surprised because I think that um, Drake was, you know, we ask about things being early or on time, ahead of its time, timeless. And I think he was both ahead of his time and on time. I think he caught into the moment where um, where rappers, hip hop stars were beginning to understand branding and beginning to take advantage of social media, digital platforms and branding. And I think that that's, that was very smart. The timing, whether it was by accident, a happy accident or it was planned this way. I think he's shrewd in knowing how to move culture and influence culture. And I think him, um, finding himself on features with this next generation of rappers who still respect him because they're close in generation, him close in years. I think that will keep him relative relevant. And as long mm-hmm. as we have, we can take moments of his songs and make them into larger moments on platforms like TikTok. I think that'll keep him there. And whatever the next iteration of TikTok is, I think he'll <laughs> be there. I think he will be there. I think he will still find him himself um, relevant. Yeah. I think certainly if we're just talking about a time frame of five years, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I think 10, 10's trickier. Like what is, what does 40 year old Drake sound like to us? Um, does he make this pivot into sort of whatever the modern day equivalent of quiet storm would be, for example, I, I can imagine him doing quite well with something like that, but, um, 
I, I, I think it is a little trickier to project the Drake stees and imagine what that could look like in 10 years. But of course I have no idea what pop is going to sound like in 10 years. And um, yeah, it, what, could Drake still be in the mix by then? I don't think it would be, I'd be a little bit surprised, but not like I would never have imagined it. And this speaks to your point, Morgan, is that he's proven himself incredibly adept at staying relevant through a lot of very smart strategic choices. Um, you know, I think he, for any kind of aspiring pop acts coming up behind him, the Drake template and blueprint is a very smart one to learn from. Um, you, you may not want to duplicate it because Drake is in a lot of ways, very singular into himself. Um, but you can learn a lot from sort of just this, the, the why, the wiseness, is that even a word? The wisdom, I should say, of, of his strategies in terms of, to your point, again, staying relevant within this uh, an ever-changing pop world. And, and I do think that what's contributed to the longevity is, for the most part, out of the booth, there haven't been too many scandals, you know, that have kept him sort of keep. There have been some, but there haven't been so many where he has to do a whole album to address his whole this whole litany of scandals. On top of that, we're still talking about a 33-year-old man who's been in the game for, you know, a decade. And he's still very young and young enough to reinvent himself over and over again. As people say about his styles, he's somebody different on every album. I think that's worked to his advantage because that means he rides trends. So I do think he'll be around in, in, in five years. Ten, we'll just have to see. I like all the profit, man. I hardly do percents. A big part of me resents. Niggas that I knew from when I started in this shit. They see what I got in, man. It's hard to be content. So, man, if you had to describe this album in three words, what would they be? Drake is inevitable. <laughs> Much like Thanos, Drake is inevitable. Now, we normally leave our audience with other albums to listen to but because and we talked about this in last week's episode about how you know drake is king of features right and so i felt like we needed to get a little bit into some of his our personal favorites of it so morgan if you had to choose a drake feature to recommend to the audience which one would you go with you know there's so many to choose from and i'm i am feeling a little bit resentful um, at having been asked this question because there are so many. So resentment is there, but I, but I love you. So I'm working through that resentment. I think it would have to be, and I've gone back and forth on that, but I think it would have to be his feature on a game song called Good Girl Gone Bad. Mm. To me, he bodied that one. Good evening. I'm in Chicago with the Elysian with some girls that say they models, but mm, I don't believe them. Who's still getting tested? Where's all the women that can still remember who they slept with? Where's all the girls too busy studying to make the guest list? But when you do go out, you're still working what you was blessed with. Do it, girl. I'll be the king, the queen. That's from, um, that's from the games, uh, the Red album, which goes back to, uh, to 2011. And I don't listen to uh, a lot of the game. Um, but I loved that album. I loved that song, and I love the sample, which is a, a song called "Don't Make the Good Girls uh, Don't Make the Good Girls Go Bad" by Della Humphrey. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot to choose from where his features are concerned. But I like how he wrote that. Mm-hmm. What about you? 
I'm going to take it back to the first one I really remember in terms of Drake being on a feature. And this is from uh, 2012. It's a Meek Mill song. So clearly this is, I think, before him and Meek and, and Drake had beef, which is Meek's Amen. Just bought my niggas some cane, so much it came with a plane. Bought my niggas some dope, so much it came with a boat. I just bought me a crib, so big it came with a moat. For niggas jumping the fence, I hope you niggas can float. And I just hope that I'm forgiven for caring about how they living and loaning a little money and keeping. I mean, Morgan, I don't have obviously anywhere near the same relationship to gospel music that you do, but I'm actually surprised more artists are not lifting whether through samples or interpolations, but are bringing more kind of a obvious gospel a feel and hook into it because I never get tired of it when I do hear it uh, cross over like that. And this this Meek and, and Drake song was just super fun back then. Um, you know, and better times before they, they had to go at one another on wax. Sure, and I do think that's going to change. I think one thing that, that Kanye has done um, with the Jesus is King albums and stuff like that is to make um, gospel music more palatable to this generation. And I do think that we're going to be in, in the months and years to come, we're going to hear a lot more of that. Well, that will do it for this take two segment on Drake. Morgan, I love that you and I have been jawing over Drizzy for seven years and running now. I hope we'll have at least another seven more ahead of us to continue this conversation. A hundred percent. Like this could have broken us, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> but what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, you know, <laughs> and we were able to, you know, use this as fuel to get closer. And so I'm thankful um, that we had that conversation in 2013. Obviously, I want to shout out A. Martinez, Jacob Margolis that brought us together in the first place. And um, the people that are listening that, you know, have Drake's ear, I really love him, and like I said, he has been a, a, a part of me and Oliver's relationship, so we'd love to get him on the show if he wants to talk to us. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.